morning. Uh, please go ahead and open your Bibles back up to 2 Samuel 9. We'll be looking at it fairly often as we work our way through the passage. And uh, maybe we can just change spots. You know, I've, I've already spent a couple of minutes here in the sun, and you guys look a little bit more comfortable. Okay, well, just move on. Um, you know, one thing that I did forget to mention while we were up here with the mallets is that this is going to be their last Sunday here for a while. So please, yeah, just uh, be sure to show them some love before you leave. And also mind the uh, little postcard that's in your booklet. And uh, yeah, put this on your fridge, put it in your Bible. Just remember to keep them in your prayers. Well, Second Samuel 9. just makes me think about the fact that we live in a world where promises are being made less and less frequently. At least the kind of promises that actually seem to be worth something because those are the ones that actually usually cost us something. Uh, for example, you might have uh, seen some of these headlines lately about how divorce rates in the U.S. have hit a new 50-year low. Sounds good. But what's often not mentioned is that the rate of people actually getting married is also hitting a new low and the rate of marriage is plummeting much more rapidly than the rate of divorce. So it turns out one big reason why costly promises such as marriage aren't being broken in the first place is because they're not even being made as often in the first place. Now, marriage is just uh, one example among many, you know, of how promise-starved our culture is becoming. I said, let me ask you, what kind of world would you like to live in? Would you rather live in a world where promises of abiding and loyal love are often being made and actually being kept? Or would you rather live in a world which feels kind of like the one that we live in today, where promises of any sort are becoming less and less common by the day, and the promises that are being made are made so casually, only to be broken when the going gets tough. Well, I have some good news for, for us today, and it's about a God who not only makes extravagant and costly promises, but unlike us, keeps every single one of them. What we're going to encounter today in uh, 2 Samuel is the God of promise who always keeps his word because his character demands it. He is a God of steadfast love and a binding commitment to merciful, loving kindness. And that's from every yesterday to forever. And we're going to actually see this most holy promise giver and keeper reflected in a person, a royal image bearer of his, a man named King David, who, when he's at his best, echoes the very heart of God to his people, especially his enemies. And it's his heart that will actually anticipate and foreshadow another king to come, actually from his royal line, another son of David named Jesus, who will not just echo the heart of God, but somehow take the very heart of God and turn it into flesh. 
And it's with that heart that he's going to pump the very blood that's going to conquer sin and evil once and for all and usher in the fulfillment of God's promises in ways that David never could have imagined doing. So let's dive into our passage with this uh, crucial starting question. We need to get this clear before we move on to anything else, which is, what is God actually promising his people? What promise is he going to fulfill? And the answer from our passage comes to us in just one word. And that word is kindness. Kindness. David is going to show such kindness because as it turns out, he's experienced such kindness first from the Lord. Which leads me to my first point, which is God's kindness brings about David's kindness. Look with me at just verse 1. Verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So as we open this chapter, uh, it's helpful to know that David has been king of Israel for many years now, likely a decade or more. And uh, his reign is going incredibly well, meaning Israel under David's rule has uh, seen unprecedented growth, prosperity, uh, security, rise in global status. But then David raises this question that could somehow take all those precious gains and put it in serious jeopardy, right? Because when David expresses this desire to show kindness to anyone left in the house of Saul, this is like saying, I want to bless the greatest rival dynasty I've ever been up against. I want to show favor to my enemies, the house of Saul that waged war against me for many years. Now, this sort of thing would have sounded like madness to any other king of David's time because they normally went out of their way to show extraordinary unkindness to their enemies. Right? You see, uh, smart kings don't leave their power to chance, right? which meant that uh, if any potential threats or rivals were uncovered, they normally had the option between A, a painful, merciless execution, or B, hopeless, lifelong imprisonment, which was, in a way, a form of execution, just much slower. Now, that power playbook hasn't really changed that much over the years. Uh, in fact, if you look at modern dictators like Mao, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, uh, Kim Il-sung, you know, North Korean, got to give him a shout out, who, by the way, grew up as a pastor's kid, a Presbyterian pastor's kid. All these guys, they purged their rivals, right? They had them whacked because only a fool would show such kindness to his enemies. So, why in the world would David seek to show such unusual, foolish kindness to the house of his enemy, Saul? He seems to have so little to gain and so much to lose. Well, the hint was in the first verse. Uh, It was because of a promise that David made to his friend Jonathan. That's a big reason. Now, as you might recall, Jonathan was the son of King Saul, and he was next in line to inherit Saul's throne. But Jonathan, 
believing the word of the Lord, recognized that God had actually chosen David to be king next in place of Saul. And as a result, Jonathan made himself a faithful friend and servant to David to the very end, to the, at, at, at the cost of his own life. Now, Jonathan did make one request of his friend David that he would show kindness to the house of Saul. The same word, kindness. When, he, when David took the throne, he didn't elaborate, but at a minimum, this probably meant, please don't kill my family. Please spare my family. Don't bring an end to the house of Saul when your house takes power. And at this point, it would be tempting to think, you know, all, all the things that we've read about David so far. Uh, David's going to keep his promise because, wow, he seems like a really good guy. You know, so upright, man of his word, full of integrity. But I don't think that quite explains it because in just a few chapters, we're going to see King David forget God and then be at his worst. David's going to lapse into being monstrously two-faced, self-seeking, and in the process, he's going to break basically every trust that's been given to him. Now, thankfully, we're not there yet. We're still in chapter 9, where David remembers the Lord. And he's going to be a man of his word to Jonathan by blessing Jonathan's only son. So the question remains, how does this actually come about? The answer is simply this. David does so by faith. Faith, not in himself, but rather faith in God's word, where God has revealed who he is and where he has promised his kindness to David. Right? And here's, here's what God had promised to David earlier in chapter 7, and it's ultimately what empowers David to do the right thing, to keep this promise. God promised David a completely secure future for the throne of his house. It would be an everlasting throne. Nothing and no one could ever be able to challenge it or topple it. And here's part of that promise from 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, where the, the Lord assures David, and I'll just read, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And the Lord also interestingly promises that his kindness would never leave this forever king. Right? This throne, this throne that represents his house would last and endure forever under God's kindness. Which meant this. King David now had no reason whatsoever to be insecure or afraid about his future. He had no reason to secure his own future in the typical ways that, that the other kings of the world strive to do. Right? He was now free from uh, placing his hopes in his own cleverness, public achievements, wealth, or military might. All the things that seem so glorious to us, all the things that we get serious FOMO about, but ultimately, all these things have no real substance in and of themselves. 
Where's the substance? David would place his confidence in God and his word, right? His promise. Because he knew that God was going to keep his word and bless him and his people and the whole world with the most perfect kindness ever, right? Which was the gift of a son that would come from David's line who will reign forever as king and make God's world as it should be. Because that's how God's son is going to rule. So once again, how is David able to be a man of his word? It's ultimately only because he was trusting God to be a God of his word. So as David walked by faith, he was empowered to actually show, even to his enemies, kindness. Because once again, God showed him kindness first. He loved because he was loved first. And it's here that I want us to reflect on what it actually takes to obey the commands of uh, God's ultimate king, Christ Jesus. You know, easy commands such as love your enemies. He's not putting that out as an option or a suggestion. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, much like David, I'd say it's quite impossible for us to fully obey such commands in our own wits and strength. And I think that's, you know, when we often sense our weaknesses, when we're also tempted most to forget God and try to do things in our own wits and strength. It's this vicious cycle that sin puts us in. But here's the good news. What's beautiful is that before Jesus gives that particular command to love your enemies, he also gives his disciples a few kingdom promises first, such as this one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you know what might actually empower and free us to love our enemies in a meek and gentle spirit and thus obey our king? First it takes receiving the promise by faith. And then the power of the Holy Spirit comes to us, which further empowers us to walk by faith. And then we're free and empowered to rest in God's promise. And then we live like people who have nothing to lose and everything to gain by being meek. Because in Christ, the meek shall inherit the earth. And remember, Jesus was the first one to inherit this promise, wasn't he? Right? He was the first and foremost blessed and meek one who loved us, his enemies, who prayed for us, who persecuted him, showing us immeasurable kindness on the cross. So, with uh, God's promise of kindness in hand, what does David do? How does it serve as an example for how we should do? Well, David actually goes searching for those that are in desperate need of God's kindness. Which leads us to the second point. God's kindness seeks after the lost. Look with me at verse 2. Yes, we're moving on to verse 2. 
as King David so pursues his enemies, but not with hostility, but with God's kindness. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So David, while looking into uh, whether anyone was left in the house of Saul, uh, he's introduced to this fellow named Ziba, who seems to be on the inside track. You know, he was he was uh, a servant of Saul's at one point, and later it's mentioned that uh, Ziba had, I believe, 15 children and 20 servants, or 10 children. Anyways, he had a lot of children and servants, which means this. He was pretty high up in the food chain, fairly wealthy. Basically, uh, that, that transition of power from Saul to David didn't seem to hurt him much. And he's doing just fine for himself. He's in, he's in many ways the complete opposite of Mephibosheth, who we're going to meet. Now, Ziba brings to David this uh, surprising news of the, ex the existence of someone from Saul's house, Jonathan's son, who is also described as being severely crippled in his legs. All right? This was none other than Mephibosheth, who we've actually heard about already back in chapter 4, uh, where there was a brief sentence or two about how tragically Mephibosheth actually became crippled. And I'll sum it up. Uh, when Mephibosheth was just a little boy, five years of age, and, uh, you know, if you have children that age, you really start to take this to heart. His father, Jonathan, was killed in battle. And this news freaks out Mephibosheth's nurse, and they try to uh, uh, flee. So she picks him up, and they're trying to, to head somewhere for safety. But in the chaos of fleeing and the mix of everything, Mephibosheth's nurse drops him. And in the process of falling, he's crippled in both legs. Uh, his story is actually quite the heartbreaking reminder of how broken and messed up life can be in this world. Here's this young and innocent child with seemingly such a bright future, uh, born into royalty, seemingly the son of a great man in Jonathan. And then all of a sudden he gets dragged into the chaos and violence of war. And in one fell swoop, once again at the tender and very innocent age of five, he loses his father. He loses the use of half of his body. And then he has to live out the rest of his life socially stigmatized as the displaced crippled son of a disgraceful former king. How'd you like to be dealt those cards? It just is enough to make you wonder, where is God in all this? Why didn't he intervene? Doesn't he care about the fatherless? This just does not seem very fair. And no doubt Mephibosheth probably had many of these same questions and thoughts. 
And by the time we come to this chapter, Mephibosheth is a young man in his 20s. And he's still not living a very charmed life. Uh, He seems to have been living all these years in desperate hiding, right? In in dread of all the enemies of his grandfather Saul, and, and he had plenty of them. Now you can imagine, Mephibosheth was probably a young man who was daily acquainted with sorrow, grief, bitterness, and on top of that, terrible anxiety about his future. And what Mephibosheth probably had a hard time seeing in the midst of everything that's gone wrong in his life was that the God of kindness had not forgotten him. The God of kindness has not forgotten him. What Mephibosheth probably wasn't aware of was that even before everything went to hell in a handbasket in his life, God was securing his future by arranging a covenant of promise with the future king who would ultimately bring about his restoration, his redemption. What Mephibosheth didn't see coming this fateful day when he was brought into David's palace was that it was God drawing him there in his kindness. His kindness was seeking after Mephibosheth. Look again with me at verse 3 and notice whose kindness David is ultimately looking to extend. Right? When David asks, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? King David wasn't looking to show his own kindness or, or merely human kindness. You know, that's, that's fickle and not very secure. But rather the very kindness of God. And this is what his eyes, Mephibosheth's eyes, were about to be opened to it, with respect to the kindness of God. It's this uh, Hebrew word that's, uh, you know, that is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch the pronunciation of it, but it's hesed. Hesed. And it's often translated kindness, but it's also really hard to translate into the English because it's very multifaceted. It's often translated in context as steadfast love, mercy, kindness, sometimes I would say even grace. But whenever you see steadfast love or kindness, just keep in mind, this is what the, this is maybe the the larger concept that the biblical authors are trying to convey. What they're trying to tell you about is a holy love that's outrageously generous, at the same time, not dependent on the worth of the one receiving the kindness, right? It's, it's normally outrageously undeserved. And on top of that, it's characterized by unfailing loyalty and commitment. Some commentators say this is like the highest virtue that human beings can aspire to. Hesed. So when God delivers Israel out of Egypt from slavery and bondage, Moses describes it as an act of hesed, kindness. And this is the kindness that Mephibosheth is about to be offered here. He's about to encounter the very character of God, who is always faithful and true, merciful, loving, and kind. 
But as we're going to see next week in chapter 10, we're the fools, and such kindness can and is often rejected. Squandered, but not today, not by Mephibosheth. He's going to show us how to be the kind of person who actually receives the impossibly wonderful hesed of God. Which leads us to our final point, which is God's kindness is received through humble faith. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now imagine being Mephibosheth, right? Pretend like you, you don't know what you know. And imagine how terrified he was to be summoned to King David in Jerusalem as one of the living heirs of the enemy house of Saul. You're not coming in expecting good things. And keep in mind, Mephibosheth probably had no idea about this covenant that Jonathan made with David. But he comes, I think, in full realization of his desperate need. Right? He humbles himself before David like he was a dead man. He was expecting to hear a death sentence, I think. But this is where you see his wisdom. Right? He comes as somebody who knows he needs mercy kindness above all else from his king. So we're told he falls on his face and he bows down before him. Now, as one commentator pointed out, it would have been a particularly painful business for a man crippled in both legs to fling himself down in this fashion. Apart from modern medicine, this was not an uncostly act for him. And King David, recognizing such humility, provides this stunning response. He calls him by name. Mephibosheth. He knows him by name. And to this, Mephibosheth replies, Behold, I am your servant. And can you imagine the burden that's all of a sudden lifted from his shoulders when, when the first command his king gives him is, do not fear. Do not fear. The king hasn't summoned you to condemn you, but to bless you with unimaginable kindness, the very loyal and mercifully loving kindness of God himself. So actually, whenever you see this command in the Bible, do not fear, 
what often follows is, is a glorious promise or act of hesed, God's kindness. So for Mephibosheth, God's kindness to him wouldn't just be that, oh, you're, you're free to go now. Your life is spared. Good luck. Take care. But no, all the personal wealth of his house, his grandfather and father would be restored to him. Not only that, and this is actually even more unexpected, Mephibosheth would now always have a place at King David's table, which is this extraordinary sign of favor. I know I'm using that word extraordinary a lot, but this is how much of an honor and privilege it is, right? And in verse 11, we're told that he's sitting at table like a son. Now he's, now he's being treated like a son by David. Never in his lifetime would he have imagined that he'd experienced such kindness and how stunned and dazed in a good way that, that he must have been by all this. And his response, I love it, to David reflects his true and abiding humility. Verse 8, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant? And this even echoes what David said to the Lord, right? In chapter 7. Who am I? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Who am I so insignificant and weak and despised that you should show me such kindness? Now, this uh, chapter has this incredibly happy ending with David delivering on everything he's promised and Mephibosheth comes to enjoy the wealth of his fathers and, and actually the Ziba character. He's humbled and now becomes his servant. And on top of that, guess who comes along for the ride? Verse 12, his son, Mephibosheth's son, Micah, the next generation of, of the house of Saul. This is how secure David is in the promises of God. But now let's be clear. This chapter closes in verse 13 with this odd, emphatic reminder that Mephibosheth was still lame in both his feet. Right? Even though King David went above and beyond to bless, bless him, there were things that he ultimately had no say or power to remedy. But this would not be true for the son of David to come. King Jesus of Nazareth, who would show the world God's kindness in ways that have never been seen before. And not only would he actually heal the crippled and the lame, he would do so simply by a word. But even then, every person that Jesus healed physically eventually died. Disease, war, famine, every person that Jesus physically healed ultimately died. And on top of that, Jesus often acted and spoke as if all these acts of, of healing were just 
a foreshadow, a hint of what would be his greatest act of healing for all mankind. Him dying on a cross. Now, if you look closely at the Gospels and Jesus' teachings, you realize, yeah, all those healings, they were just a foreshadow of the great and much ultimate, much greater ultimate healing to come. One that's going to completely address all of our needs in both body and spirit. And of course, what I'm speaking of is what comes after the cross, the resurrection, right? Our hope is that on the third day, he rose. And this is the extraordinary kindness of God that is being offered to you today in King Jesus. Salvation through the forgiveness of sins and the hope of his spirit and resurrection life. So let me ask you, um, have you humbled yourself so as to receive such outrageous kindness? Because uh, this is what Jesus promised from our first reading out of Luke 14.11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, and exalted like you wouldn't believe. And elsewhere, it's repeated multiple times in the scriptures. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want to understand how the cosmos actually works, take that one to the bank. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, if you're someone that has ultimately received the kindness of God, have you reckoned with David's example? That he was shown kindness and therefore he was compelled to show that kindness to others. Now, here's another wrench. Have you reckoned with the fact that Mephibosheth is actually really a picture of each and every one of us? We come into this world, we bring our own sin, but then we're also broken by this world. And maybe unlike Mephibosheth, we keep on looking to the world too, to deliver us, to save us. The same world that's breaking us. But the only hope that we ultimately have has to come from outside of this creation. It has to come through God's kindness, right? And he, Mephibosheth, is this uh, picture of our desperate need for God's steadfast love and rescue. And if you humble yourself, blessed are you, for the meek will inherit the earth. Now, let's also remember that God in his kindness through Christ is still seeking the lost. Which is why 
This is what Jesus also commanded to those who would follow him, to share his kindness. Luke 14, verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. <laughs> huh? For you will be repaid. When? At the resurrection of the just. Because you see, this is what God's king is ultimately doing in our world, for the world. God in Christ Jesus has opened up his table of fellowship to all people to come and dine at table with him so they can be like his sons. Not merely as servants, but as sons, as children. And now, today, uh, we live with this privilege as his people to share this kindness, this good news of God's greatest promise, which is actually our new covenant, right? This new promise ushered in by the blood of Jesus, secured by his own body and blood. So, let us not be afraid. Let us know the kindness of our King. And may we also go out and make it known. Amen.